Chapter Thirty of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Eight: The So-Called Primitive Accumulation. Chapter Thirty: Reaction of the Agricultural Revolution on Industry, Creation of the Home Market for Industrial Capital. The expropriation and expulsion of the agricultural population, intermittent but renewed again and again, supplied, as we saw, the town industries with a mass of proletarians entirely connected with the corporate guilds, and unfettered by them. A fortunate circumstance that makes old A. Anderson. Not to be confounded with James Anderson, in his History of Commerce, believe in the direct intervention of Providence. We must still pause a moment on this element of primitive accumulation. The thinning out of the independent, self-supporting peasants not only brought about the crowding together of the industrial proletariat, in the way that Geoffrey Saint Hilaire explained in the condescension of cosmical matter at one place, by its rarefaction at another. Footnote. In his Notations de Philosophie Naturelle, Paris, 1838. In spite of the smaller number of its cultivators, the soil brought forth as much or more produce, after as before, because the revolution in the conditions of landed property was accompanied by improved methods of culture, greater cooperation, concentration of the means of production, etc., and because not only were the agricultural wage laborers put on the strain more intensely. But the field of production on which they worked for themselves became more and more contracted. Footnote: A point that Sir James Stewart emphasizes. Endnote: With the setting free of a part of the agricultural population, therefore, their former means of nourishment were also set free. They were now transformed into material elements of variable capital. The peasant, expropriated and cast adrift, must buy their value in the form of wages from his new master, the industrial capitalist. That which holds goods of the means of subsistence holds with the raw material of industry, dependent upon home agriculture. They were transformed into an element of constant capital. Suppose, for example, a part of the Westphalian peasants, who at the time of Frederick the Second all span flax, forcibly expropriated and hunted from the soil, and the other part that remained turned into day laborers of large farmers. At the same time arise large establishments for flax spinning and weaving. In which the men set free now work for wages, the flax looks exactly as before. Not a fibre of it is changed, but a new social soul has popped into its body. It forms now a part of the constant capital of the master manufacturer, formerly divided among a number of small producers who cultivated it themselves and with their families spun it in retail fashion. It is now concentrated in the hands of one capitalist, who sets others to spin and weave it for him. The extra labor expended in flax spinning realized itself formerly in extra income to numerous peasant families, or maybe in Frederick the Second's time in taxes for the King of Prussia. It realizes itself now in profit for a few capitalists. The spindles and looms, formerly scattered over the face of the country, are now crowded together in a few great labor barracks, together with the laborers and the raw material. And spindles, looms, raw material are now transformed from means of independent existence for the spinners and weavers, into means for commanding them and sucking out of them unpaid labor. 
One does not perceive, when looking at the large manufactories and the large farms, that they have originated from the throwing into one of many small centers of production, and have built up by the expropriation of many small independent producers. Nevertheless, the popular intuition was not at fault. In the time of Mirabeau, the lion of the revolution, the great manufactories were still called manufacturing réunis, workshops thrown into one, as we speak of fields thrown into one. Footnote. I will allow you to have the honor of serving me, on condition that, in return for the pains I take in commanding you, you give me the little that remains to you. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Discours sur l'économie politique. End note. Says Mirabeau, we are only paying attention to the grand factories, in which hundreds of men work under a director and which are commonly called large manufacturers, réunis. Those where a very large number of laborers work, each separately and on his own account, are hardly considered. They are placed at an infinite distance from the others. This is a great error, as the latter alone make a really important object of national prosperity. The large workshop, Manufacture Réunie, will enrich prodigiously one or two entrepreneurs. But the laborers will only be journeymen, paid more or less, and will not have any share in the success of the undertaking. In the discreet workshop, Manufacture Sepure, on the contrary, no one will become rich, but many laborers will be comfortable. The saving and the industrious will be able to amass a little capital, to put by for a birth of a child, for an illness, for themselves, or their belongings. The number of saving and industrious laborers will increase, because they will see in good conduct, in activity, a means of essentially bettering their condition, and not of obtaining a small rise in wages that can never be of any importance of the future, and whose sole result is to place men in the position to live a little better, but only from day to day. The large workshops, undertakings of certain private persons, who pay laborers from day to day, work for their gain, may be able to put these private individuals at their ease, but they will never be an object worth the attention of governments. Discreet workshops, for the most part combined with cultivation of small holdings, are the only free ones. The expropriation and eviction of a part of the agricultural population not only set free for industrial capital, the laborers, their means of subsistence, and material for labor, it also created the home market. Footnote. Mirabeau. First C. Pages 20 to 109. Passim. That Mirabeau considers the separate workshops more economical and productive than the combined, and sees in the latter merely artificial exotics under government cultivation, is explained by the position at that time of a great part of the continental manufacturers. End note. In fact, the events that transformed the small peasants into wage-laborers, and their means of subsistence and of labor into material elements of capital, created at the same time a home market for the latter. Formerly, the peasant family produced the means of subsistence and the raw materials, which they themselves for the most part consumed. These raw materials and means of subsistence have now become commodities. The large farmer sells them, he finds his market in manufactures. Yarn, linen, coarse woolen stuffs, things whose raw materials had been within the reach of every peasant family, had been spun and woven by it for its own use, were now transformed into articles of manufacture, to which the country districts at once served for markets. The many scattered customers, whom stray artisans until now had found in the numerous small producers working on their own account, concentrate themselves now into one great market provided for by industrial capital.
Footnote. Twenty pounds of wool converted unobtrusively into yearly clothing of a labor's family by its own industry in the intervals of other works, this makes no show, but bring it to market, send it to the factory, thence to the broker, thence to the dealer, and you will have great commercial operations, and nominal capital engaged to the amount of twenty times its value. The working class is thus immersed to support a wretched factory population, a parasitical shopkeeping class, and a fictitious commercial, monetary, and financial system. David Urquhart, page 120. End note. Thus, hand in hand with the expropriation of the self-supporting peasants, with their separation from their means of production, goes the destruction of rural domestic industry, the process of separation between manufacture and agriculture, and only the destruction of rural domestic industry can give the internal market of country that extension and consistence which the capitalist mode of production requires. Still, the manufacturing period, properly so called, does not succeed in carrying out this transformation radically and completely. It will be remembered that manufacture, properly so called, conquers but partially the domain of national production, and always rests on the handicrafts of the town and the domestic industry of the rural districts as its ultimate basis. If it destroys these in one form, in particular branches, at certain points, it calls them up again elsewhere, because it needs them for the production of raw materials up to a certain point. It produces, therefore, a new class of small villagers who, while following the cultivation of the soil as an accessory calling, find their chief occupation in industrial labor, the products of which they sell to the manufacturers directly, or through the medium of merchants. This is one, though not the chief, cause of a phenomenon which, at first, puzzles the student of English history. Footnote. Cromwell's time forms an exception. So long as the Republic lasted, the mass of the English people of all grades rose from the degradation to which they had sunk under the Tudors. End note. From the last third of the fifteenth century he finds continually complaints, only interrupted at certain intervals, about the encroachment of capitalist farming in the country districts, and the progressive destruction of the peasantry. On the other hand, he always finds this peasantry turning up again, although in diminished number, and always under worse conditions. The chief reason is, England is at one time chiefly a cultivator of corn, at another a breeder of capital, in alternate periods, and with these the extent, supplies and machinery, the lasting basis of capitalistic agriculture, expropriates radically the enormous majority of the agricultural population, and completes the separation between agriculture and rural domestic industry, whose roots, spinning and weaving, it tears up, conquers for industrial capital the entire home market. Tuckett is aware that the modern woolen industry has sprung, with the introduction of machinery, from manufacture proper and from the destruction of rural and domestic industries. The plough, the yoke, were the invention of gods, and the occupation of heroes, are the loom, the spindle, the distaff, of less noble parentage. You sever the distaff and the plough, the spindle and the yoke, and you get factories and poorhouses, credit and panics, two hostile nations, agriculture and commercial. David Urquhart, page 122. But now comes Carey, and cries out upon England, surely not with unreason, that it is trying to turn every other country into a mere agricultural nation, whose manufacturer is to be England. 
He pretends that in this way Turkey has been ruined, because the owners and occupants of land have never been permitted, by England, to strengthen themselves by the formation of that natural alliance between the plough and the loom, the hammer and the harrow. The Slave Trade, page 125. According to him, Urquhart himself is one of the chief agents in the ruin of Turkey, where he had made free trade propaganda in the English interest. The best of it is that Carey, a great Russophile, by the way, wants to prevent the process of separation by that very system of protection which accelerates it. Footnote. Philanthropic English economists, like Mill, Rogers, Goldwin Smith, Fawcett, etc., and liberal manufacturers like John Bright and Company, ask the English landed proprietors, as God asked Cain after Abel, where are our thousands of freeholders gone? But where do you come from, then? from the destruction of these freeholders. Why don't you ask further, where are the independent weavers, spinners, and artisans gone? End note. End of Part 8, Chapter 30